I would like to welcome two-time PGA Tour winner and noted golf instructor, Gabriel Yetstead to the Sub-70 Podcast. Uh, Gabe, been looking forward to this for a while. Thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Uh, great to be on with you guys. Well, first off, um, how are you and your family doing with the, the whole coronavirus situation? Hope you guys have uh, been safe and healthy, and how have you been spending your time of late? Yeah, you know what? I've actually, uh, Arizona is fairly relaxed, which I kind of, uh, you know, the golf courses are open. People moving around have been, you know, obviously being careful. But, uh, you know, so far we haven't got that many cases. Well, 5,200 cases, so hopefully it stays around there. I've been seeing it pop up 150, 200 a day, uh, which is which I would consider low considering everyone's moving around as much as they are. So the golf courses are actually packed and the governor, I think has done the right job keeping those open. So, well, it's good that, uh, life is as normal as it can kind of be under the circumstances for you down there. We're, we're kind of shut down a little bit here in Illinois. So I think people are getting a little bit itchy to start playing golf a little bit and kind of get back to normal, but hopefully sooner than later. Um, I was going to ask you, how, how do you go from, you know, really successful PGA Tour career, European Tour career, into an instructor where you're kind of working with some of the best players in the world. How did that transition happen from from playing to where you're sort of at in the game of teaching at this point? Yeah, it was. I mean, it was uh, definitely injury driven. I would say that. You know, but I've always enjoyed teaching. You know, I've always enjoyed helping people, whether it's my uh, program group or. Know, you know, hanging around the game so much. You know, I played professional for 20 years, so you're always picking up stuff. You know, I'd watch Seve Chip, you know, to ask him a few questions. And, you know, you hang out, play with Greg Norman. You know, you play with all these really good players, and then you end up having lunch with them afterwards, maybe playing a practice round with them. So, you know, the amazing thing, I think, with the PGA Tour, it's, it's, it's very... They share a lot of information the players between each other, which I feel like in other sports you see none of that, you know. So I think it's it's a different breed, but I think the game is so humbling that I think it sort of um, creates that environment where it doesn't matter who you are, you're going to be vulnerable out there. I mean, you've seen it through, you know, a lot of great players, you know, Duvall, top of the game, boom, can't make a cut, you know. So and you, you know, you've got Brooks Kepko's you know, lets his mouth run a little bit, then all of a sudden the game catches up. It's like, it's it's a humbling game, and you'll see it over and over again. I, see, I think when you look at Tiger, for example, he was just so much better than everyone else. And, and, and uh, you know, I played with him a bunch, and it, it's just a totally different level. So I was going to bring that up and ask, I assume you you did play with him in his prime. When you did play with him in his prime, even as a multiple winner on the PGA Tour and you played professionally a long time, were you, was it still even, were you in all of it at some point? I know you try not to be because you're competing against him, but was it just at a level you'd never seen and especially impressive when you see it up close? Yeah, and, and I think what the whole you know, when you play with Tiger, I mean, you'd rather play behind him than in front of him because the crowd just runs up. But, you know, when you're in the group, no one really looks at you. You know, everyone's sort of engaged in Tiger, even, you know, myself as a player or someone else playing with him. But it's, he's fun to play with. You know, he's you can you can give him a little stick and stuff like that. But, you know, I remember one time I was down in uh, San Diego playing with him down there. And... You know, he had a lie on the on the north course there, and he's in the rough. 
I looked at the lives I've walked by, and I'm thinking to myself, he's probably just going to lay it up. I wonder where he's going to lay it up. That's really what I thought. And the next thing he does, he pulls out a three-wheeler and smacks it on the green. And, and you sort of go, well, I, didn't ha- I don't have that shot. You know, and it, it's kind of wild to sort of see. There was a few players during my time that had that. You know, you had some of the big guys, you know, VJ, O'Neill's. There were some guys that could hit shots that, especially on the rough, I mean, that's where you see where the strength comes in. I mean, anyone can flush off the fairway. But the difference is for the strong players, they can still move it out of the rough a good distance, you know. Was it, did you enjoy that? I mean, I'd have to probably answer my own question, but I mean, it had to be fun as hell to, to play in that environment, right? With all those eyes on you and see how you stack up. I mean, that's what you guys live for, right? I mean, it had to be no, a no, blast. No, it was. I mean, it's like, you know, I got to play three masters and, and it's like, you know, you, you sort of dream about that when you're a kid, right? But when you're in the moment, it's not that big of a deal because you're exposed every week to PGA tour event. You know, you play with good players all the time. So, you're a little bit jaded to it, I would say, you know, but if someone said, you know, listen, you haven't played on the PGA Tour for 10 years, you're going to jump on, you're going to play an event, you're going to teed up a target now, you'd be jacked up like crazy. But, I mean, obviously you're jacked up, but it's different when you're playing week in, week out. You see the guys in the locker room, you see them at the lunch show, but, you know, it's, but uh, you just expect to be there. That's probably what it is. Yeah, makes sense. It's still a cool, cool experience to go through. Um, yeah. well, let's dig into the short game here a little bit. I know you teach a lot of it, and you work with some of the world's best helping them out. But on the front end, uh, a lot of the country is just getting started to playing golf again. And what are a couple, two or three tips that you would have that you consistently see, you know, mainly in amateur golfers, that they should be thinking about as the year is starting to improve their short game? Uh, I think so. If you sort of observe some of the greatest players, like Jim Furyk is one of these players that I felt like, you know, he's not very special, you know, when you look at him hit the ball and stuff, but he produces, right? So he's one of those guys that produces low scores all the time. And, you know, you look at the routines that most of the good players, have. they they actually go to the putting green first, chipping green, and then they hit some balls and go and play. So, uh you know, we've been off the game for this long now. So, I mean, if, if your viewers would sort of say, you know what, when I get to the golf course, I'm actually going to start chipping first or putting first, and then I'll make my way to the range. So even if you get 10, 15 minutes, you know, of that before you hit balls, it makes a massive difference. So I think it's it's just scheduling your practice a little bit better. And I think that's where, you know, most people just want to go to the range, you know, they run out of time, off they go. You know, no putting, no chipping, no bunker shots. But I think if you grab a few balls and say, okay, I'm going to hit 10 regular chips, 10 mid-flighted chips, 10 flop shots, 10 bunker shots, then I can go. You know, just give yourself a little number like that. And all of a sudden, it, those habits, after a month of playing or four weekends, five weekends, all of a sudden you have those habits. And those are the ones that are going to make you score better. When you're working with the with the guys on the PJ Tour, really, you know, high end amateur player, in, when you go and look at what you're going to try to help them improve upon, is it kind of taking what they have and accentuating it and make it better, or do you kind of have a system that you know, even if you're working with Graham Dillette or Kevin Chapel, we might have slightly different motions, 
you're going to say, hey, to be most effective, we're going to we're going to do it this way. Or how do you sort of approach working with the really elite players? You know, obviously they can chip, they can putt, they can hit bunkers. They wouldn't be out there without that ability yet to get the most out of them. How do you sort of approach working with, with that level? Yeah, and, and it is kind of weird, you know, working with those guys because what happens is, like you said, they are already good players. You know, they can hit all the shots. But they'll have, believe it or not, they'll have one or two shots, maybe it's a low low shot or a flop shot or maybe out of the bunker where they're freaking out all the time, you know. That's normally why they come to me. So it's like they have a shot that they feel so uncomfortable with that every time they're facing that shot, you know, they, they um, you know, their anxiety levels go way up. And you'll see most players will have something that they're uncomfortable about. But so... Really, the, the big thing as I work with those guys is, you know, is the tempo part, is the constant speeds, you know, making sure the pass and attack angle is is where it should be. And, and they're all going to look a little different. So uh, I don't really try to change. Like, you, you get a lot of teachers that get up and they want everyone to look the same way, which I think is crazy because, uh, you know, everyone's bodies are a little different and, and especially with the good players, you have to really respect what they do already. So you have to really, it's got to be very small inputs because you don't want to change the way they go about things. It's very easy to take a good player and really turn them into crap if you feed them too much information. You know, So you got to be very careful when you go along. You know, then is a lot of that then like when they're uncomfortable are you basically half a psychologist as well because you've been there? And is there that trust because you have played the PGA tour and won on the PGA tour that when you kind of, when they relate information to you, you've been in that arena and you understand. So sometimes is as much mental side of stuff that, Hey, you've got this shot. You're a PGA tour player, a great player as much as it is technique, or is there usually technique causing the anxiety? Yeah, it could be both really. But I think a lot of the times, they'll ask me to hit the shot, you know, to sort of watch as well. So, uh, you know, that happens a lot. You know, I'll be, you know, be out there and say, let's, let me watch you hit a couple of shots so they can get the feel of it. But what, what, and the, and the anxiety part of it, obviously, yes, I've been out there, I've felt most of the feelings these guys can feel. So they do open up about certain things and I allow them to open up about certain things where, they know I'm not going to share it with anyone, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, there's a little bit more trust there where, yeah. And, and I'm, I've always been very careful about that with any client that I work with is like, you know, because a lot of people, you, you could end up teaching, you know, a, a regular amateur player and the, the conversation becomes something totally different, you know, but it's sometimes people just need, and, and I think being around the game so much, and playing at the level that I did, I did spend a lot of time with psychologists and stuff. I'm not saying that I, I know a lot, but, you know, it's some basic tricks really to sort of change the mindset before you hit a shot. So, I mean, what happens with myself and regular amateur player, I mean, say, for example, that, you know, you struggle with your flop shot and you miss it, your iron shot into the green, you're behind the bunk, and now you need to hit a flop shot. The anxiety level just went up. The closer you get to the ball, the more anxiety there's going to be. So how do you break that? So you need some sort of a swing thought that you've developed on the flop shot to say, all right, you know what? I don't care what happens. I'm just going to go with this swing thought that I've been working with 
and let's see what happens. So it's like, um, and and out there on the PGA Tour, it's like committing to the shot. I mean, it's so many times when you're uncomfortable, you're not 100% committed, you'll just miss at the shot because of that. You know? Not because of your swing, not because of anything else, it's the psychology part of it coming on the downswing. It's such an interesting, I don't know, the game itself, right? It's that's that's why I think the part we love about it, and the part we always think we can get better. And it's it's so crazy to even think the best players in the world have anxiety over a golf shot. Because when you watch it on TV, you would just assume there's massive confidence on every shot. Like that's why they're there. You know, this these problems are for you know us amateur golfers, not for professionals. <laughs> but it's kind of cool. I know every you know every now and then they even have a little doubt creep in, and yet they can overcome it and do it. So it's always an interesting conversation yeah. from that side of it. I was going to ask you yeah. too. What what do you think? makes a great wedge and i know you've worked with companies you've had some design ideas and you've played a bunch of stuff over the years is there a sort of a constant out of all the short game work that you've done and it's not one brand in particular but is there certain features of a wedge that you think are for lack of a better word are timeless they work and you love seeing these incorporated in people's wedges that they buy yeah exactly so i look at like um i mean why is mickelson such a good bunker player why is he a good wedge player? And it's pretty simple. 90% of it is the club. You know, it's like people say, oh, and, and, and this is like, I was almost number one in bunkers every week on the PGA Tour. You know, and, it's just, and the golf club has a massive part to play in that. So, I mean, if you look at like wedges, now you can argue the balance. I mean, we can get into a little bit of detail, but, but the width of the sole so if you if you take the average player, say, and even the the, the tour players, I mean, if you looked at uh, Ernie L's wedge, you'll see it's a very wide sole at the bottom. Yeah, good bunker player. You can go down the list of all the top bunker players in the world. They all have one same thing in common. It's a wide sole. Now, if if guys are using, uh, you know, the Ping I two was one of the greatest wedges of all time out of the bunker. Not so good off tight lies because, you know, the leading edge would dig in. You know, if the ground was firm, it was fine. But out of the bunker, it's un- unbeatable. And that's where the Callaways come in. You know, Mickelson designed a really nice wedge there. And, and I mean, I always tell manufacturers, like, make a wedge with a wide sole and then people are going to be, it's going to be very easy to get out of the bunker every time, you know. And also, it's going to be very easy at a thick rough to hit, hit the flop shot. To, to let but that wider you, soul slide through a little bit easier, essentially. Yeah, it bounces. Take, it's it's yeah. forgiving, you know. So right. it's like, I mean, you, all you got to do out of the bunker is hit down and the ball comes out. So, And I guarantee you, if you ask Mickelson, he would say the same thing. I mean, big part of his short game is, is the club. So it's a, and, and this is where it gets interesting because, like, you look at players and techniques of people that chip. So if you got someone growing up in Australia where the ground is firm, you know, they didn't have much water on the greens or on the grass and someone from South Africa, someone from South America, all firm ground. They're very steep chipping. They're very, like they get very steep action. Uh, You know, generally they, they like a little less bounce because, the club's not going to kick off the hard ground. So they end up playing that less bounds club their whole career because that's what they grew up playing. 
And then you take someone from North America a little bit that played off soft grass, you know, we're a little spongy, a little soft, a little wet, same with the Europeans. They're going to want a little bit more balance because they're guarding against that, you know, that big divot. So it's a little interesting how the techniques, very, very different techniques from players from they grew up as kids on firm grass compared to soft grass. Yeah, or the same example of why guys change their wedges out. I'm sure you may have done this when you went and played the Open Championship, right? I mean, the turf conditions could yeah. also determine what kind of wedges you're going to use to, you know, to maximize the performance per se. Exactly. So, I mean, and, and you know, you, your listeners here is like, take a look at your golf course. I mean, one, you should have a white sole for, you, for your lob wedge. Either you do it on the 56. Or you're doing a lot, 56 or 60, it doesn't matter which one you use out of the bunker. They, they both work the same. But if you just have a wide sole, there's your bunker game right away, you know? So, and then depending on the conditions, you know, wedges are so cheap these days, you can buy a couple of different ones, you know? So. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it makes sense. And I don't know if the, you know, the, the the average golfer realizes that golf you know professional golfers will change those wedges out based on the conditions they're playing so it's, it's kind of hard besides the wider sole with the with the the bunker play there's really no sort of one size fits all for every condition like you said if you were playing over at Royal Melbourne versus Firestone it's, you know yeah. you could have two totally different kinds of wedges in the same player so it's exactly. always interesting to dig in the you know, dig down into the wedge technology and see what, what works, but I'd love uh, hearing your opinion on it. Um, I was going to ask you this, too. You brought up Mickelson. You brought up Els. If you're going to go watch some PGA Tour players in their prime right now that just have phenomenal short games week in, week out, and if you were a fan, who would you, who would you go follow? If it was going to be one or two guys that you just absolutely love besides Els and Mickelson. Uh, yeah, a lot of the young kids really have – Good short games, I think. Now it's it's they've come along. I'm trying to think of this uh, this kid that really spins it a lot. Uh, the Mexican kid, what's his name? Um, uh, oh, uh, Abraham Answer. Yes, so he, he whips it like crazy, and I like his action because I like some people have watched him because what he does, he keeps a very constant speed into the ball. It almost looks like it decelerates into impact. That's obviously what creates it. The, the spin that he has on it, you know, you'll see him have a little longer backswing than most of the players, you know. So it's kind of he's got a he's got a very little unusual game. His his chipping stroke is a little bit more like the, the way I would chip, but you know, I can totally see why he put so much spin on it. And you, you'll see the guys, and he's got a little hand action too, very soft in the arms. And you see the guys that struggle, like very stiff, rigid arms, you know, and the guys that chip really well, you'll see them, they almost bend their left elbow on the backswing. It's kind of an interesting thing to notice because, and for your listeners out there, like if, if around the green, you don't need a straight left arm or anything like that, you can have a soft left arm. And by having a soft left arm, you'll, you'll just soften up your, your, everything will just soften up. It's, a, it's an interesting thing. You cannot, most players cannot stand up there and bend their left arm on the backswing. Obviously, it's a feel. It's never going to look like that. But. Right, right. It's almost like a little mini, mini swing, right? Just that beautiful, natural, soft action. Exactly. Yeah. And you see like guys like Rocco Immediate, he's got a lot of spin. You know, you see anyone, any one of these young guys that 
have a little bit of rhythm in there. And, and the rhythm is a big part. You know, it obviously changes. And this is another thing for your listeners. The rhythm changes all the time on chips. You know, some chips are faster swings, some swings are slower swings. So don't think it's going to be the same all the time. It's always changing up for the shot that you're looking at. So speeds. Well, I also know you teach uh, the long game as well. And uh, curious if you have any philosophies on that that you sort of uh, work with on your students or once again, is it sort of uh, you, you take what they naturally can do? And then I know power and speed is such a huge attribute of the modern game. And I know you've developed some tools for that as the game has gotten, like I said, uh, you know, length has mattered more than ever at this point and how you're kind of working speed and philosophy into the long swing with your students as well. And what sort of results are you seeing? Yeah. So, I mean, I developed a, a new tool called the speed pipe and, uh, you know, I was actually with James Hahn yesterday. I was with Alex Shaker. Now a few of the guys are really starting to use it now. They've seen pretty big jumps first go. So you take in guys like, like a James Hahn maxing out at uh, 114, 115. Now you, what you've got to take in consideration too, is like these guys hit all the time. So, They've reached a little bit of a wall. Now, you know, so James Hunt used it yesterday, had a few swings with it, and it jumped into 118. So it's like that's a very big jump right away to sort of open up, you know, really the speed part. And uh, Alex Shaker gained a couple of miles an hour. And, you know, for a tour player to gain two miles an hour in, in in the first session and then maintain that is a big deal. I think the regular amateur player gets a lot more. You know, you're talking, you know, four, five, six miles an hour in a couple of weeks of, of using this uh, the speed pipe. So uh, I'm really excited about it, and it's it's one of these things. It's like because it's it's hard to teach speed, you, and speed is one of the most important things. That's where you see guys getting a lot of power out of the rough or, or wherever it is. Uh, and I hope that you know you, you've got all these the USGA talking about bringing back the ball, or making the, you know, guys are hitting it too far. I want to see guys hit it far. I mean, I want to be, if I'm a spectator, I want to stand up there and say, you know what? I can barely reach that bunker. And this guy is flying that bunker, you know? I mean, that's, that's the game. You know, you can always narrow the greens and make it, you know, narrow the fairways and make the greens firm. It'll change things up. But so I think, uh, I was fortunate enough as a young kid, my coach was, I had the same coach as Greg Norman. And when I was 13, I was the first lesson I went to him. He said, kid, just hit as hard as you can. I don't care where the ball goes. I just want you to hit as hard as you can. And, you know, that mentality really helped me through the game because I was always a long hitter. You know, I, I was able to teach myself to hit a long. And that sometimes, you know, some of my peers had coaches saying, you know, just swing it smooth, work a new rhythm. You know, and they, they weren't very long hitters. It's funny you say it because I, I, we're pretty close to the same age, and I was taught by the local club pro when I was a kid of nice and easy, hit a little low draw, take spin off of it, easy peasy, right? But this is also, in, yeah. you know, 1983 when the ball spun yeah. like crazy, and the sweet spot was the size of a, a dime at best. So your, your teacher was a little ahead of the time on thinking yeah. that way. Um it's so interesting how the teaching philosophy has has changed over the years. Did you always work on speed even in the 90s and stuff when the equipment wasn't as 
viable to that where the, the ball still spun more and the sweet spot wasn't as big? Were you still yeah. working speed all the time? Yeah. I think I just grew up with that mentality. So I was always wanting to hit long. Because, I mean, my coach realized, I mean, he you know, he was working with Norman, and Norman was the longest out there. And obviously that's why he reached number one. I mean, if you go down the list of the num- number one players in the world, the only guy that wasn't there was Luke Donald. And he was, you know... Otherwise, every single number one player in the world was one of the longest during his era. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and I think that, you know, he just knew that Norman was long and he taught all his young juniors to hit it a, a long way. And I remember playing with John Daly at the Masters. You know, I was only 10 yards behind him when I played. So, I mean, I'd get it out there pretty good. I think I was really long with a round ball and once they switched balls, a lot of the guys caught up with me. Was, was that because you didn't didn't spin the wound ball a whole lot? Could you hit it sort of flat? Yeah, I, all relative, all yeah. things relative. Yeah, it was it was weird how you know once I switched balls, it was a whole new dimension. And I don't know if you remember the first probably one tireless balls. I do. You know, and I was playing a practice round with Jim Furyk, and he was keeping up with me. He was playing. I don't know if he was playing the stretch on ball or whatever, but. He was right there, five yards behind me or whatever. And he said, have you tried seaming it? And I said, what are you talking about? Yeah, people are seaming the tightest ball. So for your viewers out there, so there was a seam on the ball. So if you lined that up down the fairway and hit it, it took spin off the ball. And, you know, I gained 30 yards right away by seaming it. Yeah, it would just tumble, low spin, just like a, right, just. (laughs) And it went dead straight every time. It was like the craziest thing. And, uh, you know, I love that ball, actually, because you stand up and then if you're on the fairway and you're on the seam of the ball and say you had a seven on, you backed it off and hit an eight on because you knew it was going to get further. So it was like the craziest thing ever. It didn't, it changed the game, right? Like I can, you yeah. know, the, when that modern, when that Titleist driver came out, it was in 983, in 03 mm-hmm. with that ball, it, I mean... You saw just this explosion. I remember Elza with that combination that season. I was like, what the hell? Like, he's just killing it. You know, and there's the yeah. modern ball. There's the modern era, right? Where you but can but, but I think that ball was almost one of the longest balls. I mean, it would have kept up with this ball right now, I think, off the same. Yeah, because I mean, there were guys making, like you said, just huge, you know, monumental jumps from yeah. from the equipment. Yeah, it was, it's interesting how it's, you know, how it's changed golf, uh, you know, over the last 15 years or so. What do you think of uh, what Bryson DeChambeau is doing with his golf swing, golf game, bulking up? I mean, not that he was short before. I watched, you know, I was out there that year. He won the John Deere and watched him put up that 63 that Friday. And, you know, he was, he wasn't short from, you know, three or four years ago. And do you like, I don't want to try to say, do you I, like I think the guy's just bored. I really think he's bored. He just can't. It can't help himself. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. Do you think sometimes you don't? What, what made you great and get there and win all? You know, and he's winning on tour. Would you've necessarily 180 it to gain 25 pounds? Because nah, gosh, it seemed like he was long enough. But I mean, no, no, but, it's crazy. But I mean, I think what happens is it's like, and this is the danger in golf or anything else. It's like, it's like you've got something that's really good. Just maintain it and think a little bit better. You know, that's all it is. It doesn't have to be changed, you know. 
but then you start sort of, you lie in bed at night and say, oh, maybe I can gain an extra 10 yards or 15 yards. What would that do to me? Well, maybe I'd win more. Oh, I'm going to gain some weight. I'm going to, all right, so now you're off to the races. Uh, but that's the sort of stuff that happens. It'll be interesting to see, does he win more because of it, right? What's the net result of changing his body around? He was already a big, strong guy, like, bulking up even more. Um, I always think of guys losing weight, too, have gone to hell in the handbasket, too, right? That can be as dangerous as going the other direction. So it's always interesting to see guys who got on tour or are successful then make a wholesale change and kind of see what happens with it. It's uh, Look at David Duvall, right? Classic example. He was was better heavy. I know, much better heavy. He just slimmed down. He went, you know, the thing is, it's like, I think it's a little bit of boredom. You know, think about golf or any any athlete, they get bored easily because it's the same thing every single day you're doing, right? And your mind starts spinning. You go off as, oh, maybe I should get really fit or maybe, you know, whatever it is, gain weight or whatever, you know, you start thinking about, you know, or watching someone else do something and then you sort of start, oh, maybe I should try that. Yeah, so, I mean- I met Duvall when he was in college, and yeah, he had a little belly to him, but I was like, God, that's a great golf body. He's like six one. Yeah. His forearms look like just hell something hammers, huge, thick legs, and I'm yeah. like, man, that's a great golf body. He just looks like farm boy naturally strong, yeah. you know, and he could hit that two-yard cut and hold on to it, and yeah, he was never was... quite the same when he dropped the 35 pounds. He lost, like, mass, too, well, and it just didn't look as strong. Yeah, and then he changed equipment on top of it, you know, so he got... Two things that happen. I and mean, this is you know, very dangerous to changing equipment. I don't care. It's, it's such a fine line being confident standing over a golf shot. So all it takes really, I mean, say someone changes the equipment and they're standing on a hole where, you know, normally they'd hit the eight on, they feel comfortable, they hit the shot and it goes over the green or it comes up short of the green or something happens, confidence is shut, you know. All of a sudden it sort of starts it's very it's it's very fragile that stuff very few guys change equipment very well i mean look at bernard langer why is he so good he plays the same lines he's always played yeah he's got hybrids yeah. from like 15 years ago but he I'm, yeah. you know they go the same distance every time he wants them to go that way right like there's yeah. consistency in it right there's something to be said yeah. about that um I was going to, uh, I should have asked you earlier, but if, if people want to work with you and work on short game and long game, what's the best way for, for potential clients to, to find information on you and be able to get a hold of you to uh, potentially yeah. work with you for lessons? Yeah, so just go to gapegolf.com. So uh, you can contact me there. I always get back personally to everyone. So And then uh, that's where you can buy my speed pipe as well. And I've got another interesting device that about 20 guys use uh, the Gabriel swing trainer but I think the speed pipe is you know it took me a long time to develop it and I'm pretty excited everything's built in the US every part of the speed pipe is American made so that's another thing I make everything in Scottsdale I'm down there making sure everything gets put together properly so uh, it's a it's a very good tool to really amp up some speed without have to do anything drastic. Well, before we get you out of here, let's talk about your career a little bit because it was it was pretty damn good for twenty years plus. Um, you played all over the world. What, what was that experience like as a young pro, playing the Australasian Tour, Japan, and then you know eventually making it over to Europe in the nineties? Uh, how much fun was 
you had some characters on that European tour, so it's kind of yeah. a two-part question of what's the start like as a young pro, and how much fun was it in the 90s with the great group of guys you had over there at that period of time? That was amazing. So, you know, I had a, had a pretty – my early junior career was terrible. I'd always finish last, but I started a little late. So I just fought my way. So by the time I was 16, 17, I started getting some breakthroughs, and then, uh, you know, I had some – had a couple of good amateur events at the end before I turned pro. And, and, you know, I turned pro at 18, which, you know, a lot of the Europeans did at the time because either you did apprenticeships, you finished grade 10 at school, did apprenticeships, became electrician and whatever it was, or you went off to college. And, you know, college was never really in my, I didn't really have that opportunity. So, you know, I just turned after we won the Eisenhower Trophy, we beat uh, Phil Mickelson, David Duvall, and uh, David Eager was someone else was on that team. I forget, but uh, yeah, I went home and I sat down with my coach and I said, uh, and I was very, very nervous because I wanted to tell him I was going to turn pro. And and I said, you know, Charlie, I want to turn pro. And he says, all right, good. He says, you know where they make money flat, right? I said. No, no, why? So you can stack it. So, but uh, that was that was a pretty interesting comment because a lot of people could have said a lot of a lot of coaches could have said you know maybe you should wait or maybe you know you're you're a little young to turn pro. But he gave me the right encouragement to go. You know, well, he I ended may up have seen, he may have seen the talents as well that was there, yeah. right? I mean, you, no, you're exactly. out there for twenty years plus, so there must have, there's probably something in the yeah. DNA there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so I went out and, you know, I got Rookie of the Year, my first season on the Australian tour, and then proceeded to go to Japan, play up there. That was an interesting, interesting couple of years. And, uh, but once I went to Europe, I felt really excited. I was happy because Japan was tough. I was like one of five foreigners on that tour. So no one spoke English. You know, back then you had to stay in different hotels because you're a foreigner. That's all changed now, but. So it was it was, a, it was a very tough grind up there, and once I got to Europe, I felt like very excited to be playing, and you know, just it was fun traveling around. All the guys traveled together, so you know, when you're down like that, that's really that's a good time. And uh, you know, I ended up coming over to the US. I think uh, in '96 I got through tour school, and. Uh, you know, played a few years here, so it was it was um, it all went very quick, but it was fun. Did Did you ever get to meet Jumbo Zaki? Was he still playing in Japan over there? Yeah, at that time? so yeah, so it was funny because those guys used to train. I mean, I was supposed to go to one of his training camps one winter. I don't know what happened. I didn't end up going, but uh, you know, they they trained a lot with uh, baseball bats. You know, they throw golf balls up and smack with a baseball bat to build strength. And he was, you know. Even in his 50s, he was killing the ball. But I remember I went through one of those little training routines with those guys. And afterwards, I had the shanks because I was swinging a baseball bat. I kind of stopped doing that. You know, I shanked every single ball after. So that was weird. But, uh, you know, it's um, Jamasaki, he was, he really smashed. I remember, you know, during the summers playing there in Japan, it's like Louisiana hot, right? humid and, and and he would warm up in his rain gear 
and then he would take his rain gear off. So it was like the weirdest thing because he wanted to warm up in extreme heat so it would feel cooler afterwards, I don't know. Well, he was still like world, I mean, he was still world-class good in his 50s, right? Like, you're not talking yeah. much past his prime. Like, he was one of the best players in the world. If he would, I mean, if he would have came over and played Champions Tour at that period of time, he probably would have. I mean, yeah. a real good chance of dominating it, right? Like, he was really good still. And very long. I mean, like, crazy long off the tee. That's so cool you got to meet him. What a legend there, right? Yeah, yeah. What's that uh, first win like on the PGA Tour? And then... Is it is the second one easier or is the first one? I mean, you backed it up, so you get the first one, and what's that feeling like? And then is it almost relief on the second one that, yeah, I can do this and I'm a multiple-tour winner? It's a different level of respect from the guys, I have to imagine. Yeah, I think uh, the first win was was really strange because I, 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 I had terrible preparation for the week. And... Uh, you know, I actually had two events left for the season because I was going to miss my tour card. So I applied for the tour school again. And I had two events left. And I was so tired. I said I said to my girlfriend at the time, wife now, but I said, let's just, we'll just take a trip for a week. So we went to Spain and uh, just chilled out for a week, which was kind of strange. But and then came back to New York. And I, I didn't even know where Indicott, New York was. So I flew into New York. I'm trying to find the map where this place is. So I realized it's a four-hour drive from Manhattan, you know. So it's like, and I got in a day late. You know, all, everything was weird. And then, but, but coming down the stretch, even the last round, I was one shot off the lead, and I started off double bogey, bogey my first two holes, just because of nerves, I guess. And then I got so angry, and I came back with three straight birdies, and then, you know, got back but towards the end of the round like I, I was one shot back but you know I was, I was attacking and, the, and you know Andrew McGee was playing in front he was playing defensive golf so he made a mistake and made a birdie so that's kind of where it changed but um, you know the, the last hole there was a very difficult hole it was trees right out of bounds and water left but uh, that was probably my best drive of the week straight up the middle so did, did it go slow or did it go fast? A lot of times you talk to guys and the first time they're kind of ready to win on the tour, everything speeds up. And sometimes they're in the right frame and it just it slows down. And, I mean, obviously you played great to win, so I'm guessing it sort of slowed down and came to you essentially where it wasn't speeding up and out of your comfort zone. It kind of felt like it should per se. Yeah, well, it felt like opportunity to me. You know, so and I think that was the difference because I'd given away two – tournament in Europe 18 months earlier where I was like, I should have won both of them, no problem. And I just gagged it coming down the stretch, big chokes. So I sort of looked at this, let's do it right this time, you know? So, and, but that's the difference. I mean, to me, you know, the winning part rookie year wasn't really my rookie year. It was more like I've been playing professional golf for like six years. So, right. Right. Yeah, it was it was a little different, and then you know the second win was I was playing really really good golf. I'd come off two missed cuts, but I felt like I was playing great, and then conditions were right. You know, rock hard greens, no one could hold the ball on the green. I was hitting moon balls, and you know it was one of those weeks where I finished fifty second in putting, but still won. 
Wow. So, ball striking, uh, Jesse, that week. Yeah, it was like crazy ball striking, but it was more the greens were so firm that, and I was hitting moon balls. So, and then a but that's where distance comes in. Yeah, yeah, and a playoff against uh, our buddy TA3, um, <laughs> friends with Tom. So, yeah, he had to go uh, mano a mano versus, uh, versus TA. Um, yeah, I managed to double bogey my last hole in regulation, so I ended up in a playoff. <laughs> and birdied the first one, right? Yeah. That's a bounce back. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, what's amazing with that golf course, the last time I played a tour event there with the new golf balls, we were hitting driver eight iron for the last hole. And when we played it in 99, we are hitting driver two iron or driver five. That's crazy. And you're that yeah. much, right, I mean, you're older, right, and still hitting it that much further. From the same tee yeah. box, even, it was that big of a yeah, difference? Yeah, same tee box, yeah. That's crazy. Are you thinking uh, Champions Tour? I mean, you're getting close. Yeah, so I've got uh, yeah, about 18 months. I am starting to practice. I am getting frustrated. <laughs> no, it's, uh, no, I am starting to practice, and, and, and I'm keeping my speed up. So, you know, that's the fun part. I mean, my speed's at 118, 119. So just trying to maintain that. And, um, and I, I just got to practice. I got to get game ready. I haven't played in 10 years in a competitive golf. So, you know, I got to get out there and uh, get the cobwebs out. You don't forget how to play or think, but it's all other stuff, you know. So I'll probably start playing some small events, trying to Monday qualifying stuff once the season kicks off. Well, I got a few uh, quick hitters here, and then we'll get you out of here. My my first one is uh, on your buddy Alex Jacob going out in the Outlaw Tour, pushing 50 and just dominating, right? Like, how cool is that, that he's still, you know, I mean, yeah. he's a world-class player, but to go out and beat the guys almost half his age and – still, you know, going out on whatever tour is available and competing. Like, how cool is that story? No, no, it's amazing. I, you know, I was with him all the other day, and it's like, you know, here's a guy that, you know, he, he has to play. And a lot of guys are like this. It's like a VJ or him. If they're not playing, they're freaking out. You know, if they're not playing, they think they're going to lose the game. This is some of these guys' mentality. And, and Alex is like, He's thinking, okay, I'm scheduled to play 14 events this year or whatever it is to get ready for next year, and he hasn't played any. So he's he's doing what he thinks is right, and I, and I love that. You know, he he doesn't care. He's, he's, he's prepping for next year, and I think he's going to have a big year out there on the senior tour. I think he's going. he's been world-class for a long time. He's going to do just fine, and he still hits it plenty long. He's going to have a lot of uh, birdie looks, I think, when he gets out there. But that's such a great story that he's, yeah. you know, back out in the mini tours because that's what's available, and he's out there winning. Uh, yeah. Which which is the better golf course, Bel Air, L.A. Country Club, or Riviera? Oh, I've got a soft spot for Riviera. I just I, I like it because it's so difficult. It's hard to make birdies, but uh, – it depends who you're playing with. You know, <laughs> I think I, I play all of them a lot. So, but, uh, you know, Bel Air, they, they read at the course. It's a little easier right now, the front nine, but the back nine is still pretty stout. And it all depends to me. They're, they're all very good golf courses. You know, Bel Air and LACC, they, they play on Bermuda grass. You know, obviously, you've got. Um, Riviera as a Kikuya grass, but you know, if you got a good money game on either one, it's all good. 
Is there a course or two out there that is still on your list you want to play that you haven't gotten to play yet, but you're like, I'm at some point I'm getting out there to do it? You know what? I haven't played Cyprus. That's, you know, I've been invited a few times and I had a friend of mine say the other day, let me know when you want to play. So I'll probably go and play that one. Uh, the rest, you know, is, I don't know. There's, there's, there's so many fun little golf courses all over the world that, Sometimes people don't even talk about, you know, so, and, and, and I always look at it, very few golf courses you go out, like Royal Melbourne, for example, you go out by yourself and say, okay, if I break par here, I'm, I'm happy. So it's just you and the golf course, but it's very few courses where you really can sort of say, you know what, it's just you and me right now. And I'm going to go out and I'm going to see what I can shoot. So, uh, but there's a few courses around, the world that I think like that, you know, LACC is actually one of those where I go out. Okay. I'm going to see if I can break par, you know? And, uh, but, um, you know, I'm, I was always a tournament golf player. I mean, I didn't really play much other golf than just tournament, tournament golf. My last one here for you. You played in all the majors. Uh, which is your favorite and, and what makes that tournament so special? Well, it's it's got to be the Masters because it's it's obviously hard to get into, and and that's the one that you watch from the age of twelve, thirteen, or whatever it is. And growing up, growing up in Australia, I'd have to do three a.m. You'd get up and watch it, and you know the music, everything you watched, everything. And once you get there, it's it's pretty special, you know. And uh, I will I will say I teed it up there with Arnold Palmer. I got paired up with Arnold Palmer there one year during the tournament. At the Masters, yeah, and it was yeah. like it's like crazy. So, and this is this is one of these experiences where you can't prepare yourself for. I'm on the putting green, I walk over towards the tee, and my right hand starts shaking uncontrollably. Okay, so just like, and the next thought in my head was, how am I going to tee the golf ball up? I can't tee it up like this. So I ended up placing that tee. I mean, I really teed it up maybe a quarter inch off the ground and I braced my hand against the ground because of shaking. So I just rolled it on and proceeded to hit a low skank up there about 190 <laughs> yards up the fairway. <laughs> is, is that the most nervous you've ever been on one tee shot? Oh, by far. I mean, it's, it's like you had, you had no control over the thoughts at all. It was like the crazy. I think Arnold must have just been laughing so hard inside watching me. <laughs> Was he just awesome to play? I mean, was it just, I mean, I guess it's a two-part question. How cool was it? Then how the hell do you even focus on the tournament? Because, like, you're playing the Masters with Mr. Palmer, right? Like, yeah. it'd be hard to even focus on the round because you're just, this is the yeah. stuff you dream of as a kid. Yeah, I know. I think what was amazing was to watch him play the first six holes. I think it was, like, one or two over the first six holes, and he really fought hard. Then he ran out of steam, obviously. But, yeah. you know, he, he really... Until he ran out of steam, he, he had it going for, for his age and, you know, for what he had. So uh, but it, was, it was a great experience, you know. It was, and it was one of those things when you're, in, when you're in those tournaments, you don't think about it too much. You think, I mean, this is cool. But it's like, you know, I think afterwards you think about it, you know, that was, that was more than cool to do that. Absolutely. Is the uh, Open a close second for you as an international player as well? Like, Yeah, I mean... Uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of the U.S. Open, actually. I feel like it's the U.S. Open, 
has been one of my favorites. You know, and, and a couple of things. It's a little bit of scandal every single time. I mean, you tell me U.S. Open where they God. haven't screwed up a green or something has gone wrong. It's a you know, I don't know. I don't know how they can do it. But, I mean, I think the British Open is a little bit more fair, but then I played Canusti one year where, you know, that's the year Garcia shoots 88. You know, they got no fairways. It's it's like a... <laughs> There was nowhere to lay out from the sixth hole. It was seven yards wide, and you're hitting a four iron in there. So, but, um, you know, it's, uh, they're all fun. And the better you play, the more fun it is, obviously. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation. And, um, yeah, I hope some of our listeners reach out to you. I know your reputation is just absolutely yeah. world-class with, with teaching both short game and long game. That's why some of the best players in the world come to seek you out. So, so I appreciate it. And, yeah, privilege and honor to have you on, Gabe. It really is. Have a great Thank evening. Thank you so much. All right. You All right. Good. Take care. Bye.